Hey, good morning, Fellowship family. Would you stand with us today? What a great day we have to worship the Lord together. We hope you'll just enter in.
good. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. You may sit down if you'd like. <laughs> How many have had air conditioning at the very top of their thankfulness list this week? It sure has been warm. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's really great that each of you have decided to be here. If this is your first time to be with us, an extra special welcome to you. And if you've been coming for a few times and still haven't connected, would you please stop at the connection booth after the service? There are people there that want to meet you. They can answer any questions that you might have. They will help you get connected to the newsletter or whatever you need. And um, we really encourage you to do that. But if you would rather to use the QR code, that's fine too. And somebody will call you this week to visit with you. I have a couple opportunities um, to remind you or to invite you into for this week. Women, we will have another women's gathering on Tuesday night at 7 in the foyer. Whether you've been before or you've just been thinking about it or you've had to come to one or two and been out, we invite you to come. Um, bring your chair, bring a friend, bring a neighbor, and um, we'd love to see you at 7 in the foyer. And men, about eight hours after that gathering, the men are going to gather in the great room for the Wednesday mornings at 6.15 a.m. And you are invited to come. I'm not sure what it looks like at 6.15 in the morning, but you are welcome to come, guys, if you would like to. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of trouble, and it's hard to figure out how to respond in grace and truth and not just react to the crazy in this world. I don't think it's an accident that we're deep into John right now. And I love that the first chapter of John starts talking about holding on tight to grace and truth. I invite you to watch this video with us this morning where Mickey articulates well what it looks like to hold on tight in our culture to both truth and grace. Since the earliest days of Fellowship's existence, we have made our position on abortion very clear. We have always believed that taking the life of an unborn child was and is wrong. An innocent baby's right to live should not be based on another's right to choose. We have strongly supported organizations who provide services and options for young women facing unplanned pregnancies. We have also preached from our pulpits at every opportunity the sanctity of human life from conception to death. Our position is not political, but biblical and ethical. We are not at war with those who disagree with us, but want to be a candle in the darkness. Nor do we condemn those who have experienced an abortion in the past. Fellowship's desire is that our congregations be places of refuge, of healing, and hope. The elders of Fellowship Bible Church feel that now is the time to speak into this situation, to reaffirm our position when the Supreme Court ruling was made public, tempers on both sides of the debate were flaring. 
And we didn't want to bring such divisiveness into our services or within our church walls. Our agenda is not driven by the media or by the world, but by opportunities to fulfill our vision and mission and reflect the love of Christ to all. Our position is based on the scriptures that life is sacred and only God has the right to choose when life begins and ends. I am grateful to God that abortion will no longer be legal in many states, but it will still be legal in others. The debate will rage on. But as I am thankful for the Supreme Court's decision, my heart is heavy for the 60 million plus babies who were aborted since 1973, and that there is such a great divide in our country over this issue. Psalm 139 tells us that God forms us in our mother's womb and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that in our country and world, mothers in the future will make the choice to let those innocent babies who are God's ultimate creation live. Let them live. Our mission here at Loving Choices is we're here to offer hope to girls that find themselves in crisis pregnancies. These girls come in here and they're hopeless and they don't know where to turn and we're, we're giving them hope. And that's probably the favorite, my favorite part is I love helping someone in crisis find hope in Jesus and find hope in um, their situation. We've had girls as young as 12 here and as old as 51 here. So we will service all ages and it doesn't even have to be a crisis as in they're considering having an abortion. It can be financial crisis. It can be, I don't have insurance. I just don't know what to, where to turn. I'm new in the area. We just want to be there to connect them with what they need. Loving Choices is offering hope, empowering families, and bringing life. We're here no matter where their circumstances are, what brought them here. Uh, we want to love them where they're at. And that's the one thing that I train all my volunteers. You have to love them where they're at. Whatever situation they're in, you've got to love them there. And that's where we start. We hope to bring them on the other side to a place of hope and, and being able to flourish in what they're doing. But when they come in, we're going to meet them wherever they're at. No judgment here. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the ministry and work that is being done at Loving Choices. Father, thank you for their commitment to love women right where they are. And Jesus, I pray that we will become that same kind of place that you would teach us how to love people right where they are. Father God, you are the healer in whatever needs people are struggling with this morning. Would you pour your healing power on them, whether it's physical, mental, emotionally, or spiritually. We are desperate for your touch in our lives. And Jesus, for those that are angry and frustrated and are living in fear, oh Jesus, would your mighty power of peace fill our hearts this morning. Open our hands, Jesus, and help us to receive your love that is completely unconditional. And show us how this week to grab hold of grace 
and truth in the way that we live. Thank you for this morning and a chance to be together. Thank you for the offering that is about to be taken. Jesus, it's all for your glory alone. In your precious name.
Jesus, only one is worthy. Only one is the high king. Only one is holy. Only one is good and gracious in a way we need most. We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts right now that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of the Father. Right now, we'd ask that you would guide us into that glory. Let us sense a little more of your presence and your power. And if that happens, Lord, we will be touched by your grace and your truth. We will be glad when it is good. And all your people say, amen. Good morning. Good to see you. I'm so grateful for the greenhouse here as well. Uh, what you don't know is that Neil and Lauren were scheduled to just uh, play and lead worship with Seth Prim, and Seth is tested positive for COVID yesterday, and so uh, texted Neil and said, hey man, good luck. <laughs> uh, any wagers on how well Neil slept last night? And I'm so grateful for the team that God has raised up here, aren't you? And uh, yeah. And Seth Prim, right now, I'm going to look at you on live stream. You are at home in your pajamas and fuzzy slippers. We are hoping you are well. We do love you and miss you, and we look forward to seeing you in a week or 10 days or whatever the new protocols are. So good to see you this morning. Hey, we are jumping into a story that is very, very familiar in the Gospel of John, I'll tell you on the front end, that story is the woman caught in adultery. The story is actually so familiar that even people who are not Bible readers, they can actually quote one of the lines in this story. It's become part of our popular vernacular. The story, we say, usually picks up in John chapter 8, but it actually begins in the last verse of John chapter 7, verse 53, and if you were to open uh, the Bible on your app or in your lap, what you would see is something that looks like this. You would see a text in all italics. And then above that entire block of italics verses, which go through verse 11 of chapter 8, you would see a bracketed footnote that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11. What? A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7, or John 21, or Luke 21, or Luke 24, or what in the world does that mean? Now, maybe you've seen bracketed parts of the New, Text, uh, New Testament before where you've seen little footnotes like this, and the way you've dealt with it is just by saying, Turn the page and keep reading. I don't know what that means. Is this saying that this story was not originally in the Bible? I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. I need you to do me a favor. Ready? I'm going to ask you to think. <laughs> I'm not insulting you. I actually believe you think every Sunday. But I'm going to actually think, ask you to think and track with me for a few minutes before we jump into the text itself we're going to talk about the text and how we got this Bible because footnotes like this do show up in the New Testament uh, from time to time. And when they do, they, they, they tend to shake our confidence in the reliability of the Bible. 
And by the way, that's a big deal because I am someone who has staked his very life and eternity on what is found in this book. And I want to know it's trustworthy. And I think you do as well. So let's jump in together. What does it mean by some of the early manuscripts do not have these verses? Well, first of all, we have to understand what a, a manuscript is. For example, last week, Crystal Bridges started a new uh, display called We the People. And in that display, they have original copies, original documents of the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Emancipation Proclamation. Those original documents are called autographs. We don't have any autographs of any of the books of the Bible. In other words, we don't have the original scrolls of Isaiah or even the original scrolled parchment of the Gospel of John. What we have is copies of those originals, and those copies are called manuscripts. I personally believe it's good that we don't have any original autographs that date back from 2,000 to 4,000 years old. I think it's good because I think if we had them, we probably would enshrine them in a museum, and then we'd probably burn candles to it, and we'd probably go up and make pilgrimages to it, and we would worship the document rather than worshiping the Jesus that the document points to. Now, we are allowed to take daily pilgrimages by opening up this book and reading the truths there and renewing our mind uh, by its truth. But what we have today is copies of the originals called manuscripts. So the autographs became manuscripts. And the Bible obviously was written before the time of the printing press. So those original documents were hand copied and passed on. And then another church received that and then hand copied them and passed that on. And so on and so forth, all the way down through history. So here's my question to you. How do you know that what you're reading here is an accurate manuscript that ties to this original autograph from 2,000 years ago? I mean, what if a copyist just made a mistake? Worse, what if there was a plot and someone purposely added or deleted something out of those documents? How do we know? Well, that's where something called manuscript evidence comes in. Now, let me give you an example of this. Let's say we were living in the first century, all of us right now, and I was a poet. And I wrote a poem that was particularly spectacular. I need you to work with me here. It was so spectacular that I gave the original autograph to you, my neighbor. And you said, you're right, it's spectacular. And you copied it and made a manuscript. And then you gave it to your neighbor who went, it's spectacular. And they copied it and gave it to their neighbor. And these, by the way, it was first century going viral with my original autograph. And now a hundred years later, we're gathered and we're wondering if these copies, these manuscripts, are the exact same as my original autograph. How would we know? We would gather up all the copies of the manuscripts. We would see if they match. And if enough of them match, and those manuscripts were written in a close enough time to the original autograph, well, then you could trust that your manuscript was similar to my original autograph. Now, why is that a big deal? 
because we judge all of human history before the printing press that way. The Bible doesn't get a pass just because it's a religious book. No, the Bible has to undergo the same rigorous historical test that every single ancient literature does. So if you want to know about Caesar's Gallic Wars or say civilizations in Mesopotamia or Egypt or, or ancient China, you would look at the same manuscript evidence. All I want to know is this. How many manuscripts do we have that match? Not ones that don't, but ones that match. And how close were those manuscripts written to the time of the original autograph? You want to know how the New Testament stacks up to every other piece of ancient literature? It blows everything else away. Everything else away. In fact, the second most documented piece of ancient literature is Homer's Iliad, and it's not even a tenth as reliable as the books of the New Testament. We have over 5,700 copies of accurate manuscripts that track, all written within less than 100 years of the time of the original autographs. They match at a 99.5% rate. That's amazing. So people who say they don't trust the Bible, and if, again, if that's you, good for you. Just make sure you're also honest enough to say you don't trust any ancient literature of any history ever before the printing press. Because this book stands a rigorous level of historical testing. How about the half percent that's in error? Well, even then, that, most of that is just um, what they call textual variance. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 21, one manuscript says, he entered the synagogue. Another manuscript says, he entered their synagogue. I'm sorry, but that variance doesn't shake my faith. Does it shake yours? No. No. In fact, Westcott and Hoy, too, are two textual criticists uh, of the New Testament. They say that the words in question that are changed can hardly amount to less than one one-thousandth of a part of the whole New Testament, which tells me that the book that you might be holding in your lap, the book that's on your app that you read, well, it's a copy of a manuscript that is so accurate to the original autograph, you get a chance to hear Gospel of John's point of view, the very life and words and ways of Jesus. And so if you want to know what God is like, we dial in and look at who Jesus is and what he's like. And we trust him. We stake our very lives on it. What an absolute privilege it is to have a copy of the Bible in our homes or in our hands. Some manuscripts have major variants. This Gospel of John, verse chapter 8, it's one of them. And it says here, the footnote, that some of the early manuscripts don't even contain this story. Well, what does that mean? Well, the issue there is tied more to the placement of this story in the gospel rather than its validity itself. In fact, um, some gospels, uh, early manuscripts, had uh, this story placed in other parts of the gospel in John, and some had the story of the woman caught in adultery in the gospel of Luke. It's more of a, of a place of finding its place rather than asking if it belongs at all, because it's a story that sounds like our Lord. It looks like our Lord. It, it's consistent with other stories of Jesus. One commentator said it this way, talking about John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. He said, in the history of the transmission of our New Testament documents, 
which all of this congregation knows came to us through copied manuscripts that are very accurate. It is from my perspective, John chapter 8 is a text looking for a context. For most in the church, Protestants and Roman Catholics alike, this pericope, scholarly word that means piece of scripture, is regarded as being fully canonical, meaning it fits in the canon of our Bible. Even though it has been understood by textual scholars for centuries to be out of place. Can I summarize that? John 8 that we're about to open, it might be out of place in the Gospel of John. It is not out of the question. And I'm glad because when we open it in just a second, it will talk to men and women who battle sin and shame every day. Men and women like you. Men and women like me. And it's going to tell us that only one good option sits on the table in terms of how to deal with sin and how to deal with shame. You ready to jump in? Me too. John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? If you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson portrayed this woman as a prostitute. And we do not know if that's true. Here's what we do know. She was a woman caught in the very act of adultery. She could be a woman like your neighbor. She could be a woman like yourself. And every one of us knows that sexual sin is humiliating. In fact, we are all a room full of sexual strugglers, are we not? And so what do you do when your sin has been exposed? Well, what these leaders do is they choose to expose her. They drag her to the most public arena of righteousness. They actually publicly halt, I don't know, this many people gathered for a teaching, and they announce her sin to everyone. Then they put her up in front of Jesus and say, the law says that we give her the maximum penalty for her sin. What do you say? Can you picture this poor woman? There's no way she's making eye contact with you. Her hands are probably crossed in front of her, just wanting to wither. Her shoulders are stooped with shame. Her hustle is probably filled with fear. Something very unseemly is happening here, and it's not on behalf of the woman. These religious leaders, first of all, drag this woman to the temple for a prosecution. Folks, the Jews had courts, and the temple was not one of them. Uh-uh. Something fishy's going on here. Secondly, the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus said that if someone was caught in the very act of adultery, both the man and the woman can be stoned. Where is the man? No, something fishy's going on here. And third, Israel is occupied by Rome right now. And Roman law said that only Rome can carry out a capital punishment. By the way, the Jewish leaders knew that. 
That's why they had to rope Rome in on their execution of Jesus in a few chapters. No, something fishy's going on here. And Jesus, he knows it. Verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Folks, the woman is not the point. She's just a pawn in their scheme. God's law is not the point. It's just a tool in their hands to club Jesus. In fact, holiness and the wholeness of people, that's not even their point. That's just a religious smokescreen. What's their point? Verse 6 tells us the point. Trap Jesus. And they do it by putting him on the horns of a dilemma, by tossing him this hot potato in public. They're hoping that Jesus will say, don't worry about Moses' law. And now they have basis to accuse him. Or they're hoping he'll say, condemn the woman according to the harshest statements of the law. And now the people will fall out of favor with Jesus. Yeah, they've got Jesus right where they want him. And that's what makes this whole thing so sickening and so despicable. Darker than the woman's sin is these religious leaders because they cloak their dark motives in the light of religion. A whole bunch of years ago, all I remember is at that time we had four children and they were all young and we were up in Branson doing what we all do in Branson, which is sweating and doing way too many things. We were standing in one of those tourist shops and while the kids were looking for some trinket or memento, I was standing by a, a wall with funny bumper stickers. I love them. I'm sorry. I like dad jokes. And I saw one that said, spiritual people inspire me, religious people scare me. So I pulled it out and took it to the front and told Lisa, we're going to buy this and put it on her van. She said, put that back. It's not going on my van. <laughs> what we see happening in John chapter 8 is both of those stories. A spiritual story is happening. A woman caught in sin dealing with shame. And a scary religious story is happening. Religious leaders filled with a spiritual pride that will use any means possible, even God and his word, to get their sinful agenda done. Let's deal with the second story first, shall we? The religious leaders, they're the story of a legalistic morality. How do you know a legalistic morality when you see it? Number one, it's always impersonal. Right? These men do not care about this woman at all. They've totally lost sight of her. Number two, it's selective. Again, I'll ask you, where is the man? I mean, this kind of sin, adultery, it does take two. So it's selective. And third, it's punitive. It has no desire to restore this woman. Well, listen, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it might be a, yeah, exactly, and Jesus sees these quacks coming, and he calls them out, he spots them, and he doesn't play their game. Look at the rest of verse 6. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now I need you to picture the posture of our Lord. He was teaching when they interrupted him. Teachers sat in those days. I know in today you sit and we stand, but in those days they would have stood and he would have sat. They interrupt him. He stands to his full height. He listens to their accusation. 
And then he drops to his knee and he starts to write in the dust. They keep firing their questions at him. He ignores them while he doodles. Drives them nuts. Continue with the story, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now can you see the Lord's posture? He was stooping and writing. You're pissed. Speak up. What do you say? Stoner? Stands to his full height. He makes eye contact. He says, go ahead. Carry out the law to its nth degree. Throw that first stone. If you have no sin and you're qualified to judge her. And then he drops back to his knee and he doodles again in the ground. And a lot of people have speculated, what was Jesus writing? And to that question we would answer, I don't know. Here's what we do know. The last time the Bible is ever recorded that God himself wrote with his very finger was back in the Old Testament when the finger of God wrote on two stone tablets and gave us the Ten Commandments. God is moving and acting. And then Jesus does also, when you know, a second thing, he gives them permission to actually judge this woman. In verse 7, he actually says, go ahead and carry out your condemning justice if you're qualified to judge. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. And one by one, the Pharisees now start to see their, their own darkened hearts by sin. The text tells us that the older ones were the quickest ones to wake up. I think that's because the longer you've lived, the more you know you have accumulated more sin. In fact, I'll go on record here. I believe a mark of maturity is when you are humble enough to know you need forgiveness more than anyone else. Grace is the greatest mark of your maturity. Grace comes from that sense of, of uh, humility. British writer G.K. Chesterton, he lived over 100 years ago. The London Times, because he's not only a writer but a thinker, he was so well sought after, they asked him to write an article for the London Times answering the question, what is wrong with the world? That should be a big article, right? Let's put the whole article that he wrote on the screen. Dear sirs, in response to your question on what is wrong with the world, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That, men and women, is the opposite of the legalistic morality that the Pharisees showed. See, a legalist is a religious tailor. They're always measuring someone else. They're never measuring themselves. And it's a, a spiritual pride. And Jesus exposes it for what it is. It is sin. It is sin that is more shameful than even the sin this woman was caught in. Because her sin, she knew she had done wrong. 
their sin, their spiritual pride blinded them to the fact that they had even done anything wrong. Now listen, let's make sure that we know what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about sin. No, Jesus does more than worry about sin. He dealt with sin head on. He dealt with it by dying for it because he knows that sin hurts, sin destroys, sin kills. All Jesus is saying here to these men is, measure yourself first. And when we do that, we move from a legalistic morality to a, a grace morality. And a grace morality is always humble. It's humble enough to not only own what's in us, but to see someone else who falls into sin and to want to see them restored, not punished. It's a humility that only can come from grace. And this morning, every one of our relationships needs more grace and more humility that flows from it. There are husbands and wives who've tried to live out their marriage lately on a legalistic morality, and it's killing your relationship. That posture that says, if only you would change, our marriage would be different. No. It's a spiritual pride rooted in blindness. It happens in our parenting, for sure, doesn't it, moms and dads? It happens in our friendships. It happens with, between church members. It even happens the way citizens interact in their community and in their culture. We have this sense that they've done wrong and have to change. And Jesus, he steps in the middle of that spiritual pride and he says, Taylor, measure yourself first. Look at verse 10 as the story continues. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Don't you see how Jesus steps into this whole ugly mess? He steps into the ugly sin and shame of this woman, and he steps into the ugly sin and condemnation of these spiritual leaders, and he offers the only solution that would cause everybody for not just being condemned. He offers grace, and he puts it in the middle of the story. No wonder, no wonder what it felt like for her to be left alone in Jesus' presence. Don't forget what Jesus had just said. Can I quote him? He who is without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. Who's the only one left in the story who's without sin? Yeah. She was left face to face with the only one who has no sin and had all right to judge and convict her. And he does not stoop down again to pick up a rock. He stares at her face and he declares truth into her. Neither do I. You know, about a year after Jesus' face-to-face -face encounter in John 8 with this woman, Jesus would be face-to-face -face with his accusers 
who are trying to condemn him. He's able to not throw a stone at her because he took all of the stones that sin demands upon himself. Our sin became his sin. Our shame became his shame. Our condemnation became his condemnation. Jesus is ele- he's left alone with this woman, not accusing her. And she is now face to face with a friend of sinner. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, folks, that's grace. And it's only to a one, it's the only option out of the two that can give us life. Every time sin happens, you have one of two options. You can go to condemnation or you can go to grace. Only one of those options lets you walk away fully alive and whole. To condemn means to judge and to convict. And God was the only one who had right to condemn and to judge, and yet he does not do so because he knows that he came to not just take the sin of that woman's adultery onto himself, but the sin of your adultery and my adultery onto himself because The Bible describes our sin before God as adultery, breaking our covenant with the lover of our souls. She's left with the only one who is without sin, and he chooses to take the rock for her. And I wonder what her posture is when she hears that line. Can you see her face? I I wonder if she looks up for the first time, catches his eye. I wonder if her face relaxes when the tear drops. I wonder if her shoulders that were probably like this start to relax as shame begins to roll off of her. And she hears those first two sentences. Remember the first one, neither do I condemn you? And the second one, go now. And she hears this amazing grace pronounced over her life. But then she hears the third sentence, go now and sin no more. Or leave your sin, it says. Leave your life of sin. You ever wonder if that threw another burden back onto her shoulders? Oh, my goodness. He's telling me I was forgiven for this sin, and now I just got to go and be perfect from now on. That's called pressure. Is that what Jesus is doing, is relieving one burden only to stack another one on top of her shoulders? Some of us have that view of grace. Some of you believe that when you go to Jesus and confess your sin to him, you hear him saying, I forgive you, but from now on, can you clean up your act and stop embarrassing me and yourself? That's not biblical grace. That's our world standard of grace. You know, even in the Christian world, we have ways of using the word grace in ways that don't talk like the Bible. So, for example, if she or he messes up, we don't say things like, uh, hey, we need to cut them a little slack. No, we use more Christian words. We say we need to give them a little grace. But we know it means give them a little temporary slack. That's not the Bible. The Bible is all three of these statements stacked up side by side. Because when Jesus says, go and sin no more, he is actually giving a full declaration of grace. The order is absolutely critical. It starts with a declaration of, I don't condemn you for your sin. 
and you are now free from that sin. And then it flows to a next step action. Free people walk in freedom. And they live out the empowering grace of God that changes their life. And so grace, grace forgives. Neither do I condemn you. Grace frees. Go now. And grace fuels a transformation in our lives. Leave your life of sin. We all have definitions of grace. Maybe your favorite one you've heard is one that's commonly spoken of. I like it. It says grace is unmerited. Anybody know the next word? Favor. Unmerited favor. That's a great definition. It means unearned blessing and favor of God. I like that definition. But it's not my favorite one. My favorite one I stole from the late Dallas Willard. He says that grace is the activity of God on your behalf. And here we see the fullness of grace of Jesus in an activity that, that forgives this woman who needs forgiveness, right? But frees this woman who needs to walk in freedom. And then a grace that fuels this woman's ability to have a, a life change that lasts, forgiven, free, transformed. This is the grace of God. Grace is not just God's sin eraser. Grace is the fuel in your spiritual gas tank that can cause change. It erases sin and empowers change in our lives. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. Drink it in this day. Tomorrow morning, wake up and drink a fresh cup of it in the morning. Because some of us are caught in a trap of self-condemnation where the shame and guilt of sin of the past or maybe for you even sin of the present, something that you know you're hiding and walking in right now, it has trapped you and held you and you feel anything but free. Jesus has one solution for that sin and it's grace. He doesn't need your try-harderism. It's a spiritual pride that smacks of a legalistic morality of the Pharisees. He needs you to say, I need forgiveness. I receive it. I need freedom from the power of sin. I receive it. I need fuel to see change happen in my life. I receive it. Some of us in the room are trapped with um, condemnation of others. Dark anger and anxiety is clouded over your heart because you see the sin of someone else. And it makes you angry. And you need the freedom from that sin too. A spiritual pride that gets released and forgiven and a power that allows you to move like Jesus moved. Grace is the only option for all sinners. You cannot turn the page of the New Testament without hearing this message again and again and again. And you cannot read one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament without hearing him echo this full description of grace, which is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul re-echoes this kind of grace. And he says in verse 21, God made Jesus, who, who had no sin, he's the only sinless one, to be sin or become sin for us, Folks, grace forgives. He did this so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. But you see, grace frees us from sin. 
But he continues on saying in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Don't you see grace also fuels and transforms? And what it means to be in Christ is that we are no longer trusting in ourselves, our own ability to do good, right, and keep everything perfect. But instead, we trust in him who can forgive. And he forgives by his death on the cross, pays for sin, his resurrection from the dead, which frees and gives empowering life. And when we place our faith in him, when we identify with him, we are made new. Again, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, we are born again in Christ. God forgives, God frees, God fuels and transforms. So what do we as sinners who've been caught in the act do with this? We confess. And we make sure that we confess the whole truth. Confession is just a word that says agree with God about what is true. So let's make sure we don't give a half confession, shall we? As we know, in our courtrooms, let's make sure we confess the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God. And the whole truth is this. On one hand, our sin is as bad as God says it is. And on the other hand, at the same time, God's grace is as good as he says it is. And when we confess, we confess the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Oh God, so help us. You know, communion is nothing more than an act of full confession. It says, I need forgiveness because my sin is as bad as it is. And I have a Savior whose grace is as good as it is. This morning, we will close the message by opening up the communion tables. And we've pulled some chairs in here, which we can do a little bit more during the summer months. We have room to move around, and we have communion stations, two up front here, four on the walls, and two in the very back. So there are communion stations close to you, and the worship team will lead us in a couple of songs, which will give us plenty of time to make a full confession, go to the tables, get the elements, and hold them in your hand, and when we're all back to our seats, we'll eat and drink together. God in heaven, full of grace and truth, we now humbly come to you and we confess the whole truth. We have sinned. We need a Savior. Forgive us for turning to ourselves. We turn to you. We also confess that you are the Savior who is good and gracious enough to cleanse us from sin give us righteousness. So we come to this table in your honor confessing not just our sin, but confessing our Savior. The tables are open.
Light in the darkness, my God. 
never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Always made a way. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is that is who you are 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 oh that is who you are that is who you are that is who you are constantly bidding us to come and look at exactly who he is and what he does. He does it through very tangible daily symbols like bread and drink. So on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he says, this bread, it represents my, my body broken for you. And then he lifted a cup. He said, this cup, it represents my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And he said, every time you eat and drink, you remember me. What do we remember? That he has grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that we need grace upon grace upon grace to eat and drink in the honor of Jesus Christ alone. Lord Jesus, your people say thank you. And we are made glad because of the grace of your salvation. May we walk in the joy and the freedom and the empowerment of that grace this week. And your people say, amen, amen. If you are joining us for the first time, we'd love to meet you out in the foyer. And if we can pray for you and with you personally this morning, Dick and Connie Nervig are right here. I know two friends that I would trust uh, 
I can't think of two friends I trust more than to come to them with something that would burden me. And so they are available to pray with you right now. And then as you head to the, uh, the foyer, you will see uh, red containers, or are they blue? They are red, okay. Uh, I've heard that they were blue, and I didn't see blue out there. Red containers for our friends at Samaritan Community Center, and are doing their backpack drive. Those will be picked up a week from tomorrow, and so the list of what is needed is on the screen, and those will be there through next Sunday. God bless you, fellowship. Walk in the grace and the freedom and the empowering presence of Jesus Christ this week. See you next week.